Okay, uh, we'll welcome a few others that came on, snuck in during the prayer time there. So good to see you guys. Uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah 52. And I will tell you right now that uh, we are going to make a couple of passes through this passage. That uh, Isaiah 53 is too important to do a drive-by exposition, so we're going to we're going to do a couple of different passes through it and look at different parts of it. Uh, but today we're just going to let the text sort of develop this for itself. And I was telling Pastor Terry this last week that uh, you know all of us know Isaiah 53 is this great. Um, chapter on the servant that pictures Christ, uh, you know, hundreds of years before Jesus was ever even born. And uh, so it's, it's really remarkable. I know it's one of our favorites. And uh, But remember, if we put ourselves in the sandals of the original audience of this, le- of this prophecy in this letter, we realize that the original Jews that heard this would have listened to Isaiah 53 very different than the way we would. Uh, it, I, I suppose it's I don't know. I, I suppose it's like, uh, um, you know, looking at a brochure of a vacation spot or a location. And if you've never been there before, you're going to look at that differently than if you've already been there, even though you might marvel at it and, and find interest in it either way. Well, those of us that have already been to the New Testament know the whole story. And so when we read Isaiah 53, we read with the hindsight of saying, oh, I've been there already. I've, I've understood that. Whereas the original audience is reading this without the benefit of knowing the New Testament. And uh, and again, so I, I think there's value in trying to think about it from the standpoint of how the original audience would have understood it. And then certainly we will add to that, as we ought to, what we know of the New Testament. Uh, we'll do that in time. Uh, but, but just uh, as we come to Isaiah 52, remember where we've been, first of all, uh, that, that the whole of Isaiah 40 to 66 is this reminder that there is comfort coming, there is hope coming in the midst of the discipline action of God to send his people finally to Babylon after the northern kingdom had gone to Assyria, and uh, they are being mistreated. Many of their family has died. A whole generation has died off in the 70 years that they will be in Babylon. And uh, and everybody's wondering, is, is this the end? Remember we saw last time the Israelites are saying, have God, has God divorced us? You know, has he sold us finally into slavery only to never come back to us again? And of course we saw in chapter 15, 51 last time that God has not abandoned his people. There is still hope. And just to remind you once again that what we're reading today is written back in Isaiah's time, but it's really written for the, uh, the generation of Jews that were living in Babylon some 150 years into the future. So Isaiah looks ahead and he says, I'm going to give you guys a message for your exile time that they would not uh, lose hope there. And you just think about the kindness of God in that. But before God disciplines his people, he's already saying, uh, now this hasn't happened yet and it's going to hurt and you're not going to like it. But I just want you to know when it does, there's hope. And uh, so even on the, on the before the discipline and judgment of God on his people, he's already prophesying comfort to that generation so that they would not lose heart and uh, would see God's hand even in their discipline. So uh, let me pull up the PowerPoint here and uh, we'll get going. So how would the how would the original audience have understood this? And uh, that's a that's a really interesting question to ponder. And uh, so let's come back here. We'll start the uh, 
start the screen share here. Here we go. Okay, and all of you should be able to see. Uh, okay, yes. Okay, all of you can see the, the screen here. So, um, yeah, how would the original audience have understood this? Well, remember, one generation is hearing the whole book of Isaiah. And uh, you think Romans is a long book, 16 chapters. What are we? We're almost in chapter 12 in Romans. This is 66 chapters that uh, Isaiah unfolds for his audience uh, back in his time. And uh, it's been, as we just kind of think about the book, it's been a book of judgment. It's been a book of rebuke. Uh, God has harsh judgment for all of the kings that we've seen here. Even the good king, Hezekiah, who, who kind of, you know, tripped right before the, the finish line of his life and, and landed short, as it were. Um, and, and so in the midst of all that, this has been a very discouraging book as God has lamented the spiritual condition of his people that have rejected him and have turned into all sorts of ways of injustice and false uh, idolatry and worship and, and all the rest. And so we're grateful for this this part of the book that's about hope and comfort and that God has preserved a remnant and through his servant will once again redeem his people. But if you think of Isaiah, I kind of think of Isaiah like this. There we go. I think of Isaiah like this. Um, anybody know what that is? Mount Everest. That is Mount Everest. I think of uh, our little study in Isaiah a bit like climbing this uh, 29,000 uh, foot mountain peak. And, you know, we're just taking little by little. We're, you know, tromping along through Isaiah. And I want you to know that we are about to hit the summit of the book of Isaiah. And does anybody know, by the way, who who, uh, who was the guy that first got to the summit of Isaiah? Anybody know? Sir Edmund Hillary. There you go. Yes, Sir Edmund Hillary. And there he is. And uh, anybody know what year he did that in? 1953. So not, not that long ago. Yeah. And uh, what's interesting was they started um, reconnaissance trips and expedition missions to go and scout this out to see if they even could get to the summit and whether we're going to take the north way or the, or the south way, if you know some of the history there. And uh, Sir Edmund Hillary, so so that happened. They, they were doing these in the 30s. So over 20 years it took them of teams going, looking, staking it out. Um, at some point they realized that they would need oxygen to survive, and so they had to figure out how do they take oxygen up. And and uh, But Sir Edmund Hillary, accompanied by maybe a man that you haven't ever heard of, I know I hadn't, his name is Tenzing Norgay. He was the Nepali um, uh, native that went with uh, uh, the British, Hillary, um, and both of them were the first to get on. It was kind of like, it's kind of like a Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin deal where it's like, well, who actually stepped on the moon first? Well, Hillary, uh, according to Tenzing's autobiography, was actually the first man to step foot on the summit. So it was Hillary, as we've heard over history. Um, but both of them made the trek. And uh, here's, uh, I'll give you, there's uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Norgay there. Uh, so they were the, the two men to reach the summit first. And that's, that's where we've come in Isaiah. We've been climbing and climbing and climbing uh, in our study, and now we're about to hit the summit 
Uh, Hillary took 10 minutes to be off his oxygen and take pictures before he was so hypoxic that he couldn't even operate his camera anymore. So he had to put his oxygen back on. So, so 10 minutes at the summit. And, uh, so hopefully we're, we're gonna, we're gonna benefit from modern technology. We're gonna look at the summit for a little bit longer than 10 minutes. But, uh, anyway, so that's where we're at. We, we've reached the summit of the book of Isaiah and we are about to get a view of the Messiah and his work unmatched in any other place in scripture, I think. So with that in mind, let's, uh, let's come to Isaiah. Um, for some reason, this, hang on just a second here. Oh, my, uh, there we go. Okay. My, my computer wasn't working here. Okay. So the, the message, uh, the title of the message today is just simply God delivers. And there's a dual meaning in that. Uh, God delivers in the sense that he's finally pulling his people out of Babylon. He delivers in the sense that he is being faithful to do what he said he was going to do, right? He's, he's, he's delivering on his word. And of course, the most important deliverance that that title alludes to is the deliverance from sin. And interestingly enough, we have not heard a whole lot about deliverance of sin throughout the book of Isaiah. Most of the salvations and deliverances that we've heard about are related to people like the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And uh, so here we see Isaiah get to the heart of it as we think about the, um, the actual, the most important deliverance that we uh, we hear about in scripture. So look at 52, chapter 52, verse 1. Awake, awake. And that echoes back to chapter 59, 1 that we saw last time. The same language. Wake up. Get up. Uh, pay attention. God has something important. Clothe yourself in strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. So shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Now remember, they're in captivity, they're in Babylon, they're exiles, and uh, they can't just go home anytime they want to. So God is saying the announcement of deliverance is here. Um, you know, this is this is the day of unconditional surrender, right? Like back in World War II, uh, where God says, you are free, get up and go home. Verse 3, for thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you will be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord, my people went down to the first into Egypt to reside there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now, therefore, what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been, have again been taken away without cause. So, so what's going on here? First of all, notice that God is announcing his deliverance. Uh, this is not new. This has been going on for several chapters now. But once again, God says, your deliverance is here. You don't have to wait any longer. Uh, get ready. You're going home, finally, O captive Jerusalem. But, but notice also here, God looks backward and says, let me remind you of what I've done in the past. He alludes, first of all, to Egypt. What is, what is the reference to Egypt here, do you think? What's that all about? What is it? That's right. Yeah, that, that, that alludes to the uh, Egyptian captivity back in the day of Moses, right? You remember that? God says, remember Egypt? I delivered you there. And then Assyria, well, that just happened a few years earlier to the uh, during Isaiah's lifetime. And now look at what God says. He says, uh, um, uh, where is it here? Verse 3, he says, 
uh, or verse 5. Now, therefore, what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause? And that's an allusion to the Babylonian captivity. Now, what's interesting about that, that my people have been taken away without cause? What do you think about that? Okay, Katie is whispering here in the studio audience. There was cause. See, there's no secrets in here, Katie. Uh, anybody else? What's odd about that? It was God's judgment on the people that they would be taken into captivity. Yes, it was God's judgment. Katie's right. Dave is right. It, it, there was a cause. God's judgment on the people was the reason for the captivity. Now, now, did God tell them about that before it happened? Yes. Yes, he did. How many times did he do that? A lot. <laughs> dozens and, and dozens. Of t- I mean, how, the whole book of Isaiah has been one big plea. If you don't repent, bad things are going to happen to you. And that's over and over and over. So, so, here's, so here's the little interpretive issue. How can God say... Uh, my people have been taken away without cause. Without Babylon having a cause? Okay, yeah. R- Rob here in the studio audience, uh, you guys probably can't hear him. Rob said without Babylon having a cause. And that, that's really the perspective here. You're right on. God had a cause, right? But what's, what's Babylon doing? Why did they take over uh, Jerusalem? Well, not allowed it, but from their perspective, why did they do that? Because they were there. Yeah, that, because they like to kill people and break things, right? They, they like to just take over the land, and that's what they were doing. And remember, remember the map. I don't have it on the slideshow, but remember the map where where you know Judah is like this little you know blip on the dot of this big empire, and uh, they're like, hey, we got one little plot of land. It's it's in the Fertile Crescent there, right? It's valuable land, and we're gonna go we're gonna go take it. And so God is now judging Babylon, saying, you had no cause to do this. You had no right to do this, is basically what God is saying. Obviously, we know God had a cause in terms of how he used it in the life of his people for his disciplinary measure. But that, that's a little thing we just have to have to remember there. But, but look at verse 5 again. Seeing how my people have been taken away without cause, again the Lord declares. Are we, are we good there? Okay. Uh, those who rule, where are we here? Mm-hmm. Those who rule over them howl, and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. So this is very important because seeing my people dream. Okay. So just th- just think with me on this for a minute. God is holding the Babylonians responsible for annihilating his city of Jerusalem and taking his people into exile. God's holding them responsible, and we say, wait, 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 God, that's not fair, God, because you planned it. You were the one that made the Babylonians successful. You were the one that planned for the Babylonians to come in. So how can you blame Babylon when it was your idea? Okay, you, you, you got it. And, and you're going to need, you're going to come up with places. If you haven't read the Bible very often, maybe this is a newsflash, but you will see many times in the Bible this this collision of God's sovereign rule, the fact that he's ruling and planning and doing all these things, and human responsibility where God holds people accountable for what they do. And this is just one more example of that. So so we say, how can God blame the Babylonians when it was his idea for them to go in and destroy Jerusalem as a disciplinary act? Well, here's what you have to remember. 
those two things in the Bible never contradict. God is sovereign. He does plan. He does rule over all. He, he is over all, and nobody can thwart his plan, and, uh, and his master sovereign plan is what runs the universe. But that never conflicts in any way with the fact that human beings are moral agents and are 100% responsible for the choices that they make. So, so what you need to see here, if you get that, what you need to see here is that God is saying two things. He's saying Babylon was used by me in my sovereign plan as my agent of discipline to my people. Yes, I planned it. Yes, I did it. And, and, and that's true. Now God looks at the Babylonians in terms of their own responsibility and says, um, you guys are in trouble because you've been blaspheming my name. You've been committing idolatry. You've been destroying the countryside. And you are not without blame for the way you have broken my laws. So we see here, what's God saying? God's saying, let me tell you why Babylon's going to get destroyed by the Persians. Because they're blasphemers. This is Nebuchadnezzar. This is Belshazzar. These are the guys that defiled uh, God. They say, well, let's go get all of the gold implements of the temple that we stole out of Jerusalem, and let's have a pagan party using those utensils. How's that sound? And then you remember the handwriting on the wall, right? So this is the people that we're talking about. So remember, verse 5 on your notes there, God's name is blasphemed. And that is why God is moved to act against the Babylonians. So he's delivering his people. Yes, discipline is over. That's right. He planned it. He's going to bring them back. But from the Babylonian standpoint, he will judge the Babylonians because they are blasphemers who have mocked the name of God continually yeah it is the same there it's just here it says (laughs) okay so look at verse six um therefore my people shall know my name therefore in that day i am the one who is speaking here i am now we need to remember that 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 this is the big idea that just unfold this whole book is built on really the title of our study right it's God revealing himself. It's seeing God in both his redemption and in his judgment. So why is God acting here? God is acting here for the same reason he always acts, and that is to make his name known. My people shall know my name, and therefore in that day they will see that I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. God tells them ahead of time. Remember, The people that are receiving this audience are not in Babylon. God says, I'm telling you right now, you're going to go in, you're going to be in for 70 years, you're going to be judged, and then I'm going to act, I'm going to to, um, destroy the Babylonians through this guy named Cyrus, and I'm going to bring you back to my land, and I'm telling you ahead of time so that you know that I am the one who's really speaking to you. So God, again, reminds them of who he is. Now, watch this. Verse 7. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, where have we heard that before? 
You're saying, that sounds awfully familiar, Pastor Keith. Where have we heard that before? Yeah, it is a song, right? We got Rob and Katie here. They can sing it for us. Uh, where else have we seen it in the Bible? In Romans. In Romans, yes. And, and just so you know, Pastor Terry and I did not conspire to do this. You know, he decided to do Romans. I decided to do Isaiah. We, we were not tag teaming things against you guys here. But it is amazing how Isaiah and Romans are woven together. And, and especially in the section that Pastor Terry has been in, chapter 9, 10, and 11, we see many, many examples of that. But yeah, this, this, this is quoted in the book of Romans, isn't it? In the context of what? Do you remember where it shows up in Romans and, and what it's talking about? It's in chapter 10, that's right. Yes, yes. Uh, so it is in chapter 10 where Paul is talking about people that bring the good news of the gospel. And uh, and so so the question is, what's, what's this thing with lovely feet, with beautiful feet? Because I don't know if you've ever been to a third world where people don't employ socks and shoes on sidewalks and paved streets and things like that, but they walk around in sandals that um, probably their feet is the last thing you're going to want to get real comfortable with because their feet are nasty. And that's part of the contrast, right? It is so overwhelming to the people of God to hear the announcement of deliverance that even the dirty, filthy, scab, blistered, stinky feet are beautiful in their sight as they hear the good news that God will free them out of Babylon and bring them home. Now, interesting, let's go back to our, our little talk at the beginning about Sir Edmund Hillary. So on, um, uh, what was it, uh, May 29th, 1953, at 11.30 a.m. local time, uh, Hillary and Norgay reached the summit of Mount Everest. And uh, they spent a few minutes taking pictures, and they all get, get hypoxic, so then they head back down the hill, put the oxygen back on. And uh, they had, this is interesting, they had a runner prepared some way down the mountain. He was at one of the one of the camps. And as soon as they were able to get word to the runner, guess what he did? You know what runners do? That's right, they run. And uh, he ran down the hill to uh, literally running and just taking the med, run down the hill as fast as he can. I mean, this is this is the old, uh, uh, what was the guy that uh, invented the marathon? You know, it, it's kind of like that, right? And and so he gets there into a, a little town, and that town had wireless capability, which means something very different uh, today. Wireless in that day was radio, right? It, it wasn't it wasn't cell phones and Wi-Fi signals. And I see Dan Keller smiling there. He knows what I'm talking about. So. Yeah, right. Wireless meaning radio, and they had an ability to communicate over the radio to the palace back in London that Sir Edmund Hillary had done it. He had made it to the summit of Mount Everest. And and what's interesting, I didn't know this in studying the history this last week, that was the last major event of world history where a runner was used to communicate the language. Because it's the 1950s, right? We, we have we have radio, we have the start of television, we've got radar, we've got um, you know the the start of modern day telecommunications, and uh, so really it was unneeded after that. But uh, so Edmund Hillary's runner was the last major person to physically run major world news 
so that uh, the uh, the powers in England could hear that uh, Mr. Hillary had made it to the top and uh, had survived. So, and, and again, we, we see that, of course, in, in this day, that's what you did, right? There is no modern communication. You use runners and horses and anything you could to get the message across. And God says on that day, this, this news will be so, so encouraging that uh, you, were, you, will look, you will overlook the filth of that person coming into your house um, and even deem the feet of that person beautiful because of the news he brings. Okay, look at look at verses eight and nine. Joy resounds when God comforts and God delivers. Verse eight. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together. You waste places of Jerusalem for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. So we see this as people hear the news, as they experience the actual regathering uh, in Jerusalem, that God has indeed comforted his people. He has brought them back, that uh, the nation resounds. Remember, um, what did the Babylonians do? They left the poorest of the poor back in Jerusalem, and then they, they brought in uh, some of their own people as a, uh, a pseudo-government to sort of keep the peace. And after a while, they left. So, I mean, this... I don't know what you picture in Jerusalem. Obviously, we have no pictures of this, but this is a slum, right? I mean, this is this is a waste place with poor people, and and you picture like wild like dogs walking around and eating. I mean, just you picture this horrible place, and all of a sudden, the whole place erupts in praise and joy as the runner comes in, as it were, to announce God's plan to send his people home and to restore Jerusalem. Verse 10, look at this. The Lord has bared his holy arm. I love that picture there. In the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. You get the picture? God's rolling up his sleeves. God is is exposing his spiritual biceps to emphasize his power and his ability amongst the people. You say, well, why is he doing that? He is doing this. He is, he is knocking out the known world power of the day. He, he is showing his strength. Why? He does it publicly in the sight of all the nations so that, now we've seen this before. Is this all about just the deliverance of his people? No, this is about salvation going to the whole nations. And of course, no one even knows who the Jewish God is outside of this region. So God is making himself known by taking out Babylon. And he does it using this unknown, uh, up until that time was a really unknown region known as Persia. Okay, back to verse 10, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Why does God deliver? How would you answer that? According to that verse, why does God deliver? What would you say? How about how about one of our home audience viewers here? We've got we've got wild participation here in the studio audience. That's to, uh, to glorify himself so that all the world will see the salvation of God. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So and that's what it says there, right? In the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God, that they may be attracted to him. We're talking to to the youth, the high school students about this the other night in our high school study, that 
we don't naturally worship and love and spend our time on things that we don't value. <clears throat> right? We, we spend our time and love and admire things that we value and things that we deem attractive and, and useful and beneficial in some way. So, so if you think about that, people don't worship God. They don't love him supremely. They don't trust him. They don't, they don't care about him. They don't follow him if they don't value who he is. I mean, to say it bluntly, if you don't value God, you will not follow him. And if you don't think that God is great and worthy of your admiration and respect and trust and love, if God is boring to you and unimpressive, well, guess what? You're going to find something else to wrap your life around. And that's what part of what God is doing here. He's saying, I want to show you the extent, not just of my strength, but of my power and my wisdom and my plan. That's why he's telling us all this. He's saying, you know, Babylon's blaspheming. So I'm going to, I'm going to bring them low. And yet they were my agents. I'm going to use even their blasphemous existence to accomplish my redemptive plan to my people. And people, you're supposed to go, how can he do both? Well, he's God. That's how, that's why he can do that. So he delivers so that all the earth will know of his salvation that they will be attracted to him and value him as all those Babylonian gods uh, are, are destroyed in this event. They will see that uh, there is only one true God and he doesn't live in Babylon. Okay. So what does he say? Verse 11, depart, depart, go out from there. Now this is God speaking to the exiles in Babylon, right? God's delivered them. So he says, go home, depart, go out from there. But notice this. Touch nothing unclean, go out of the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. Makes me think of the story that Jesus told about the woman caught in adultery. Remember that? And uh, you you remember the story. Um, She was caught in adultery. The Bible tells us it was in the very act. And uh, the Pharisees and the religious leaders brought her to Jesus and they were getting ready to stone her. And they asked Jesus, you know, what, what, what should happen here, right? You know, and... Uh, the, the narrator tells us they were asking him that to, to trap him. That wasn't an honest inquiry. They were trying to trap Jesus and get him to say something they could uh, then bring him to court over. And uh, you remember Jesus stoops down and he starts writing on the ground. And, uh, and then he stands up and people one by one start leaving. And then he stoops back down, writes some more on the ground, stands back up, and he says, um, let him who is without sin, cast the first stone. And he gets back right on the ground. And, you know, every commentator ever written is is like, tell us why did you not tell us what he was writing on the ground, right? And, and you know, one of the plausible uh, possibilities, of course, is that he's writing out all the sins of all the people that are standing there with rocks in their hands ready to help this this lady, right? And one by one, they realize they're just as guilty as she is. So they put their rocks down and they leave. And after a time, Jesus stands up and it's just her and this lady. And she said, he says to her, woman, where are your accusers? Uh, and then you remember his, his famous words. He says, uh, you know, uh, neither do I condemn you. Go and what? Mm-hmm. Go and sin no more. Do you hear the echo of what Jesus says to that woman caught in adultery in what God says here to his people. Go home, 
My discipline is done. Yes, you've sinned. My discipline is done. Go home and what? Sin no more. Go home in purity, right? Go home uh, in in the, the midst of, don't, don't touch anything unclean. Go, go and purify yourselves. Live differently, he says, in light of what's happened. Okay, so depart, go home in purity. Verse 12, and be confident that God will guard you. Verse 12, you will not go out in haste, nor will you go as fugitives. This is interesting. If you think about um, the Assyrians came in, took the northern kingdom, and then Babylon took over from Assyria. So the northern kingdom of, Jude, or of, of Israel gets taken into Assyria, and then Babylon comes in, so now they're controlled by the Babylonians. So these, these exiles are just getting passed around from nation to nation. They're fugitives, so where do they go? So God says to, to Judah this time, I want you to tell you, I want you to know, you're coming home, and you're not going to be fugitives anymore. You're coming home, not to one other pagan nation, you know, and, and, and that was significant. Why? Because the Persians took over the Babylonians. And the, you, you, you might think this is just round three, right? Well, now they're going to be exiles. They might be in Jerusalem, but they're going to be exiles and captives in Jerusalem under the Persian government. God says, no, you're no longer fugitives. You're going to go home and, and your nation will be restored. The Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Now, what we see here is what we've seen all along, right? That, that Isaiah is talking about Two different types of deliverance, two different types of salvation. There's that temporary sort of um, geographic deliverance where God says, I'm delivering you from this foreign nation. I'm taking you out of Babylon and I'm bringing you home. But what have we seen in almost every chapter? God says, I'm going to deliver you from Babylon, but you still don't have peace in your heart. I'm going to deliver you from Babylon, right? And, and you're my servant, right? But the servant is sleeping. Uh, Israel remains in their sin. They remain, though delivered from Babylon, they remain in their sin. So God turns the corner. And you need to see this transition. He's going to move from talking about the physical deliverance of his people from Babylon to the spiritual deliverance that they need in their hearts to deal with their sin. Look at chapter 52 now, verse 13. Behold... My servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man. So in in verse 13, what are we tempted to believe? We're tempted to believe that once again the servant is Israel, right? Just like it's been in other places in, in Isaiah. And we think, okay, my servant's going to be exalted. Yes, the people come home. My servant Israel is exalted. And, but what do we see? Uh, he says, just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he, my Bible says sprinkle, which doesn't make any sense. The word probably means startle. He will startle many nations Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. Why? Because what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. And what we see right here is that the servant mentioned in 13, once again, cannot be the nation of Israel. 
because now we're talking about an individual who will actually, actually rescue the nation of Israel from their sins. Okay, so I think we need to just put a comma in our notes today because uh, uh, we got both barrels loaded here to get into 52 and 53 in terms of the servant, and uh, uh, we, we don't want to get out of the starting blocks and have to stop right away. So we'll just stop right here, and we'll come back next time to see what is God's plan now to deliver the people, not just from Babylon, but from the sin and idolatry of their hearts. So tune in next week, same bat time, same bat channel, and uh, we'll see you next time when we do this. Father, thank you uh, for the reminder today that you are faithful to deliver your people, that you are faithful to deliver the message and, and to follow through what you say you will do. As we think about how incredible it must have been for those first Israelites that heard this chapter, that they would be disciplined, families would die, their children would be taken away, their nation would be destroyed, their temple burned, the walls of their city crumbled, and for 70 years they would be the recipient of your divine discipline through the agency of the Babylonians. But nonetheless, you would remember your people, you would remember your covenant, that your anger and judgment would only be temporary, and you would once again redeem and save your people and bring them back to the land. Uh, and and uh, what a, a tremendous encouragement that must have been to that first generation hearing this message. And yet even more than that, uh, to hear the message that your son, the servant, as we see him in Isaiah, the Messiah would be the one to come and rescue people, not from a foreign nation, but from the depravity and sin that separates us from you. And so we're eager to jump into this text today and or next time and to, to look forward uh, to your great plan of salvation in this incredible chapter. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.